I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The market for orphan drugs is growing at more than twice the rate of other prescription medicines. In 2013, a record 260 therapeutics won orphan designations in the United States alone, as science, policy, and pricing are fueling the trend for drug makers to develop expensive drugs for small patient populations. We spoke to John Gardner, author of a new report from Evaluate Pharma, about the growth of the orphan drug market how successful drug makers have been at expanding the use of these drugs for non-orphan indications, and whether growing pricing pressure will lead to disruptions in the market for these products. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. In, in a new report, you're forecasting that the orphan drug market will reach $176 billion by 2020, representing nearly 20% of total prescription drug sales, not counting generics. Not only that, but this segment of the drug market is expected to grow at more than twice the 5% growth rate of the overall prescription drug market, excluding generics. For the sake of our listeners, perhaps you can begin just by explaining what we mean by orphan drugs. Sure. Uh, an orphan drug is one that's been designated as such by regulators in the U.S., uh, Europe, or Japan, and sometimes, a lot of the times, all three, as serving an unmet disease need in a rare disease. Um, each each region has its own designation, but for, for reference, U.S. law establishes it as one that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. Now, the Orphan Drug Act in the United States and, and similar legislation elsewhere has played a role in driving the growth of orphan drugs. What are the incentives orphan, the Orphan Drug Act provides drug makers, and, and how big a role do you think that's had in the growth of, of this segment? The, the Drug Act provides tax credits, first of all, tax credits to offset R&D costs. Um, and then uh, when a drug has succeeded in clinical trials, um, it waives the user fees on regulatory filings in the U.S., which makes orphan drugs much less expensive to develop. So this has led to a dramatic rise in the number of orphan designations including in the last decade or so, a doubling in the number of, of, of approvals per year. Um, so two, in, the, in the past, uh, in, in 2013, uh, 260 drugs were designated as orphans. Well, there's been a growing interest in orphan drugs among drug makers, a, a departure from the days of the, the traditional blockbuster drug model. Part of that comes from these incentives, but I'm wondering, have you seen other factors that have fueled this trend? What, what's brought about the change and what else is driving that growth? Is it science? Is it development time and cost? Is it pricing? Sure, there's a number of factors. Uh, first of all, we've seen uh, a rapid evolution in, uh, in, in understanding of uh, bio, human biology in the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, which has uh, helped to reveal druggable targets and diseases that once seem intractable. 
Um, and then once, once, once a, a researcher has identified a, a target um, and a suitable drug to, to address the, the underlying biological uh, um, um, dysfunction, if you will, it's much less expensive to develop an orphan drug, as, as I explained uh, before, not just because the uh, tax incentives, but also because uh, you have a smaller population, so the trial sizes are much smaller. Um, the, on average, the, the trial, the development period, will take about as long as a non-orphan drug. But then once you've submitted uh, uh, your application to the regulatory agencies, it tends to be shorter because it, t- it tends to be shorter from approval from, from submission to to decision because the regulators are actually keen to get these products on the market. So all this means uh, all, the, all these all these factors mean that drug makers uh, have a, a much better return on investment in the orphans or orphan sphere. They're simply more profitable drugs. And is there any way to quantify, you know, in terms of the development time or cost? Uh, it, it, the, the, uh, um, the development cost is, is somewhere around, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of, of a non-orphan drug, um, simply because you, that, then that's factoring in the, the tax incentives um, to, to, um, to the, the, your ability to uh, write off the R&D costs. Um, in terms of, uh, of of uh, the uh, uh, regulatory submission time, it's for if, if that was a question, um, it's somewhere around the area of, of uh, a, a two-month um, uh, a benefit that you have by submitting an orphan drug to the regulators on average. That's that's because of the faster review time. Because of fa- faster review time, yes. And in terms of pricing, you you alluded to to better pricing, but you know, can can we quantify that in any way? How? Uh, how much better are the the prices a drug maker could command for a, an orphan drug? Well, the um, uh, as, as an example, the 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 famous drug of all in um, uh, in the orphan sphere is is this drug Soliris, um, which uh, um, for a very small indication of uh, fewer than two thousand people um, has uh, uh, approximately. Um, uh, uh, the, the list price on it is six hundred thousand um, dollars. On average, um, an, an orphan drug, um, and, and it, it depends on whether you measure it by average or median. But on average, the price is right about a hundred thousand dollars for for, to, for an orphan drug. And, and yet, Nice, which is the UK's watchdog on on drug pricing, uh, approved use of of the drug, didn't they? They they did indeed, and and that's because because Nice is fairly rigorous or reasonably rigorous in its in its data, and there is a benefit. Um, it is shown to be, they were able the maker Alexian Pharmaceuticals was able to actually show that um, that that the the benefit in terms of of, of uh, patient uh, quality of life. Um, more than offset the, the uh, cost of, of the drug. Well, you know, Bristol Myers Squibb is set to become the largest seller of orphan drugs in 2020 on the strength of its cancer immunotherapy, Opdivo. In a sense, we've had a broadening of the world of orphan drugs through the, the advent of targeted therapies, particularly in cancer. To what extent are we now defining diseases as orphan indications that previously hadn't been thought of that way? Well, what has happened in, in many cases is a, a drug maker will seek uh, approval in an orphan indication first, 
um, in part because of the, the, the advantages that we've discussed before of, of doing so. Uh, once approval has been achieved, then they will expand into non-orphan indications. This is, uh, this is common in, um, cancer and immunotherapy in, in particular where, um, a particular, uh, molecule might have effects throughout the, 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 the disease process and, and can modulate modulate various aspects of, of various diseases. Um, this is a very cost-effective strategy for pre, uh, achieving approval, and for less well-capitalized biotech firms, um, is a, a very attractive one. Well, your study notably excluded a number of drugs that were first approved as orphan drugs, but now derive more than 25% of their sales from non-orphan indications. This, this includes drugs like Avastin and Enbrel and Herceptin, Umara. Remicade. Is, is there any way to quantify overall what percentage of orphan drug sales are for non-orphan indications, and how does this shape the development strategy of drug makers? Well, we, we have a, a, a definition of orphan drugs in, in this analysis um, because, of, because of this issue of, of rather large drugs like Humira, um, the world's largest selling drug, um, having orphan indications. So we, we, we sort of decided that an orphan drug, in order to, to, to be in this, including this analysis, has to look like an orphan drug. So amongst the factors that go into this is uh, first, you know, indication for, for an orphan condition, as an example. Uh, products that are expected to generate more than 25% of sales from the orphan indications. Um, you know, a trial, uh, a small trial size, uh, would suggest an orphan status or, or some, or, or oftentimes, as we discussed before, the pricing. So th this means that in, in this analysis, um, uh, the drugs have to have, uh, derived more than 25% of their sales from orphan indications. So, I mean, you, you spoke a minute ago about the the, the strategy of, of targeting an orphan indication initially and then broadening it. Um, you know, there are some great examples of that, but how easy is that to do? How successful have dr drug makers been at finding an orphan indication that they can then expand into non-orphan indications? Well, I think the world of, of immunology is um, is a is a good one because um, you can have diseases, and and and, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily hold me to this. Where um, ankylosing spondylitis is as one where you might have a very effective drug that can address an orphan indication, very small, very small population. But it, the same sort of inflammatory markers then um, run themselves to. Rheumatoid arthritis. So, so okay, go ahead. No, uh, I, I'm wondering if you know, as the, the Orphan Drug Act has not been without its controversies, right. as companies have been able to successfully expand the indications of a drug from orphan to non-orphan. Is that putting more pressure on on policymakers or on drug makers in, in regards to the Orphan Drug Act? Does that present any kind of a challenge to its existence? It, it, it is, and I think it, that there have been um, some revisions to the Orphan Drug Act in the uh, um, the regulations of, of the Orphan Drug Act in the past year or so. That essentially, what they wanted to keep companies from doing is, I think, the, in the terms of the regulation, as I read them, slicing the baloney too thin. That that is identifying patient populations 
that are because of certain molecular biological factors are a subset within a subset within a subset and then getting an orphan indication. And they've tightened up the regulations on that a little bit. Um, and there doesn't seem to have been any uh, severe uh, uh, fallout from that. But I would, I would imagine that the reason that the uh, regulators did that is because they saw the danger of it for precisely this reason. Well, we've talked mostly about the U.S., but are there significant differences in the growth of orphan drugs in other developed markets like Europe or Japan? It's 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 a very similar picture. Um, there have been some uh, differences in terms of statistical, um, you know, numbers of approvals in Europe and Japan in the past year or so. But in, indeed, you know, all these in, in all of the regions there have been um, an increase in, in orphan designations, and indeed, it, it's been a similar trend line in, in which the last ten years has been a, a, a seen an increase in, in um, applications, uh, designations, and cumulative number of designations. Well, at, at a time when there's growing scrutiny on drug prices, how much of an advantage can drug makers gain from orphan drugs? How how are payers viewing these drugs as they look at containing the rising cost of specialty pharmaceuticals? This, this is a good question um, because specialty pharmaceuticals, which are those often defined as costing more than $3,000 a month or biologicals that have to be in, in, infused in, in, a, um, in a healthcare facility, are in fact coming under in, increased scrutiny. Um, what has happened, a difference that's happened in the past uh, two years or so is that we're seeing Non-orphan drugs essentially seeking orphan prices. We will see. Uh, I remember that I, I mentioned the hundred thousand dollar price point uh, from earlier. This is approximately the price point that that Gilead Pharmaceuticals um, has brought out its drug, its hepatitis C drugs, uh, Savaldi and Harvoni, uh, which are to which which, which address a, a population of three point two million people. Um, however, in, in every case, this three this three thousand dollars a month or more biologicals. This includes orphan drugs in almost every case, and they too are feeling the same pressure and having to justify um, uh, the, their prices, and they're feeling this pressure to keep costs in line. Now, I, I believe, and it would be to the detriment of people with orphan con conditions if they had to. Um, as a result of changes in benefit structures, had to pay more out of pocket because of this new trend, because their drugs are indeed different and their diseases are indeed different. Well, as you look at the pipeline, how big a portion of that is made up of orphan drugs, and and how compelling are the drugs in the late stage clinical trials? That would be uh, probably a very difficult um, uh, um, to quantify. Um, however, I think it's safe to say that, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we are seeing this, uh, this uh, ability to identify new druggable targets and come up with uh, molecules or, or biologicals that, that can address those, those, um, those conditions. Um, the number of designations, um, the, the, the rise in the number of designations in the last 10 years is, is, is a, a good indicator of that. Uh, you know, a near doubling in annual designations since 2000, 2003, I believe it is. So uh, I, I think that we will see some 
new interesting drugs come out and some and, and some conditions um, that are unmet, uh, perhaps a disease like Huntington's or Parkinson's, uh, where where there are aspects of Parkinson's where we we really haven't treated the the disease very well, and it may add to significantly to the people of uh, the quality of life of of the patients that have those conditions. The trend is pretty clear, but do you see any threats out there to the health of the orphan drug market from payers or regulators or policymakers? I think that that indeed this question of pricing is is going to become abundantly clear in the next few years. Um, specialty pharmaceutical uh, uh, specialty drugs are going to. Um, Represent 50% of drug cost spending of, of drug spending in uh, by the year 2018. Um, the private payers are already looking at looking at it very closely. With in the case of regulators and policymakers, with, with the advent of uh, the subsidized health insurance plans under the Affordable Care Act and also the Medicaid expansions under the Affordable Care Act, the pressure is only going to get stronger. Jonathan Gardner, Deputy News Editor of VP Vantage. John, thanks as always. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.